Alright, good morning. I'm starting this uh, a little bit later than usual due to snow travels. <laughs> snow travels? Alright, there was a tiny, tiny little bit of snow. And for people just tuning in, Australia does have snow. Um, normally not this time of year. But the spot that I went to with the family for a couple of days of mountain biking is where we would normally go skiing. And about four months from now, we'll be there snowboarding, skiing. So we went down to Threadbow, and uh, it's just a really, really lovely place I've enjoyed going to a lot for for many, many years. First time I've been mountain biking there. So a lot of snow fields turn into mountain bike parks as soon as the snow goes away. Because certainly, especially in a place like Australia, like we don't have a lot of snow, we don't have big mountains. It's fun snow, don't get me wrong, but it's not like North America or Europe or somewhere like that. So they've got to try and make as much money as they can when the thing actually works, uh, when the thing actually works, <laughs> when, when there's no snow, and they've got to turn it into, into something else useful. So the cool thing about this is that you just put your bikes on, uh, you hang them off the back of the, the normal chairlift that you'd go up with in your skis normally. You get two people on a quad chair, you go up to the top and you ride down. And we just had uh, two solid days of doing this. The first time I'd been to the snow, you know what I mean. Where the snow normally is to go mountain biking, and it was uh, it was epically good fun. So particularly for Ari, my son's eleven, he uh, he did exceptionally well. I was really really impressed. Actually, we all had all had uh, soft tail bikes, sort of full suspension, designed for this kind of environment. The kids ride a lot around here, but it's normally like riding on the road and a little bit of off road stuff. So he did awesome. Elle, my daughter, struggled a little bit more. I think at, at eight she had like a women's extra small. She's massive. <laughs> but, but it was just a little bit, little bit tricky for her. So he sort of had to um, had to put her on some gentler stuff. But yeah, Ari loved it. It was awesome. I did post video to my tweets as well, and um, and that was actually really uh, uh, it's really cool to see like the stabilization on the GoPro Hero Nine Black, whatever it is. Uh, and it's it's long too, right? Like it's much longer than than skiing down. Like I'll ski down there and uh, ski snowboard and I don't know six minutes or something like that. But it's like 22 minutes on the bike because everything's just switchbacks all the way down. So after after the full day of Wednesday, the first half day, I was I was shattered. <laughs> I was so tired, uh, and I, and then I end up getting like a lot of pain in my hand because I'm a computer guy and I spent you know the last 25 years or something in front of the keyboard the whole time. I occasionally get like RSI if I'm if I'm not careful in my hand and up my arm, and I was just. Yeah, I was in pain Wednesday night just from all the shock riding down the hill. But other than that, it was really good fun. So we did that all day Wednesday, all day Thursday. Flew back to the Gold Coast yesterday. It's about an hour and a half on average uh, from Canberra to the Gold Coast. And I would normally have done this video last night, so call it, I don't know, about 14 hours ago. But I was just so, I'm so tired. I fell asleep on the couch at 7.30 last night. And that's it. I was done. But awesome holiday. And this is sort of part also of the, I guess, the recognition that we now need to do a bunch of our holiday stuff at home in Australia because we're not going overseas for quite some time. So we're just sort of maxing out all the Australia stuff. So I've got a good list of things on the agenda of things I want to do at home, which is kind of nice to pump a bit of money into the local economy too. Now, uh, before I get on to other things, sponsor. So sponsor this week has been Veronis. Veronis, a long-time sponsor, long-time company that I've done a bunch of uh, in-person events with when we used to do in-person things. 
And they are talking about Security FWD, a brand new YouTube show from Veronis. Watch episode one of How Far Wi-Fi Can Travel. Veronis do create some really, really awesome products uh, that are well worth checking out. And I appreciate them supporting me, uh, not just in person as we used to in the past, but now virtually. Do we even call this virtual anymore or do we just call it normal? Virtual normal online stuff. So big thanks to Veronis. Now, um, one other thing. I haven't spoken about what it's like with the Corona stuff here for a while, but I think people are often interested about what is it like in different places. So we we here in Queensland. So this is this is our second largest state in the in the country. Uh, for context, it's twice the size of Texas. I think we figured it was about eight times the size of the UK. We've had an epically good run uh, in terms of Corona. I mean, Australia in general has because we're like an isolated island, and the only people coming to Australia are coming by plane. Uh, and they're usually returned Aussies who go into hotel quarantine. And occasionally there's a little bit of an outbreak due to a hotel quarantine case. And we had that uh, had that a few weeks ago in Queensland where, where there was an uptick and then there was some community transmission. And, and it was really weird. It was like, and then a male stripper went to Byron Bay and did a show and infected some other people. I don't understand the mechanics of it all. But anyway, we had a bit of an uptick. And for the first time ever since this whole thing started, we had to wear masks uh, if we went into a public indoor place. So we actually managed to get well over a year into the whole pandemic thing without even needing to wear a mask, which was kind of amazing. Uh, and that all lifted whilst we were away on holidays. We still had, you have to wear them in, in every airport here. You have to wear them on the plane. It's fine, no problems. You get used to it. It's hard unlocking my phone. I'm just learning a lot. Like a lot of you are listening to this going, yeah, I know we've been dealing with this for like a year. I'm just learning a lot of this. So fortunately, that's that's lifted. And really, we're back to pretty much life as normal here. Uh, in the news this week, they're saying that, that Qantas expects to have about 90% of its pre-corona domestic capacity back by it was something like June, which is interesting because I'll tell you what, the airport in Cambria yesterday felt absolutely dead, like there was basically no one there. But things kind of returning to normal domestically. But then the other news we're hearing is it's going to be longer and longer before we can actually travel internationally, which for the most part, I'm quite okay with because it's nice just staying home. The, the big thing for us is all of Charlotte's family is in Norway. So she can't go to see her family. They can't come to see her. We're trying to plan a wedding. And it's like, well, <laughs> when do you do that? Uh, but otherwise, everything everything is tracking along really well, and we're, we're very fortunate with that. But I don't know when it's next going to be the time for me to go to a conference anywhere, especially internationally. I keep getting invited to things. Like I got invited to one overnight, uh, actually in Norway in October. And they're like, you know, if we can't run it in person, we'll run it on, online. It's like, there's no, like, given what it's like in Norway, there's no way in the world you're going to want to run that in person in October because the thing is it's not just like what will stuff be like in October but it's like what will stuff be like in the lead up to October when people are making commitments about things like travel and events and things like that so we're still a long way away in my view from doing any sort of normal in-person conference Uh, certainly not this year so a lot more of this environment in here anyway let me move on because there's more stuff happening I'm just looking at the comments here Uh, Burton enjoyed the mountain biking video yeah, it's, look, it's always nice to have these these little mementos, and particularly now with things like GoPros as well. Like, I don't know how much I'm going to watch this video, but it's like it's there. It's sitting on my YouTube channel. Maybe I'll come back to it when I'm old uh, <laughs> later on, and it will be like, oh, wasn't this good fun? And look, it's good fun, particularly with, with kids and those of you with kids who know what it's like. 
just to even look back at what was it like three years ago, and then you see them then, and then you see them now. Uh, so anyway, I like capturing those videos. Burton says, did you get hurt? No, <laughs> no one got hurt, which is which is good. Um, Al, my, my old daughter, had several fairly decent crashes, but at very low speed. So she was all right. She's bit banged up <laughs> he got some bruises uh ari landed on his ass once because he came around a corner and someone had crashed and wiped out and had not cleared the area and then he saw that and, and just kind of lost it and it's like okay mate this is what i always tell you every time you crash i'm gonna like literally drag you off the track in fact whether it's skiing or, or mountain bikes so i'm gonna get you out of the way straight away it's like that old you know that sort of disaster response thing or accident response the first thing you got to do is like secure the scene so anyway, that was his only crash. With me, um, no, I just had like pain. I don't think I fell off once, so maybe I wasn't trying hard enough. <laughs> but but I, uh, I I just had the pain in the arm, which um, which uh, fortunately was okay after that. Jeff camping in Australia, it's going gangbusters. Yeah, so I mean, again for for the overseas folks, uh, everything domestic in Australia has really gone nuts. So Charlotte and I are going to have a bit of time away just just a couple of nights somewhere in, in Queensland in June and, and just actually finding time where it wasn't booked out was really hard uh, camping's going nuts sales of caravans have gone nuts uh, I was listening in the car just on, on the way home as well the real estate market has gone nuts like we were expecting a year ago the headlines were like oh there's going to be 11% unemployment and then uh, salaries are going to drop and then prices will plummet and it's gone the other way, which is sort of over, you know, further exacerbating the, the bubble and prices that we already have. Uh, buying luxury cars is very hard. Even luxury cars on the used car market are much rarer now than what they were a year ago. And, and it's, just, it, it's just kind of paradoxical to see how much money there is willingly being spent in the country when we expected economic disaster. Jeff says, with outbound travel banned, Aussies are hitting up all the camping stores. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's it's other stuff as well. I guess part of this is a supply problem too, but um, our dishwasher's dead. We need to get another dishwasher. Now, it's a, it's a Miele dishwasher, uh, which is like built in. And to go and get another equivalent Miele dishwasher is something like a three-month wait. Now, I would imagine that that's more a supply problem than a demand problem. It's not like, oh, coronavirus has hit, everyone goes out and buys dishwashers. <laughs> you know, like camping gear, I understand. But it's uh, it's still still hard to get um, even sort of normal stuff like that. Um, okay. Oh, just says a two-year wait on a 4x4 Nissan Patrol. Crikey. Anyway, moving on. Um, the book editing session. <laughs> the book editing session with Rob. So last week I mentioned Rob Connery and I were going to be doing uh, a session on the book which we're writing, which is the, the collection of my blog post. So we did that Monday morning, our time. Monday morning, or Tuesday morning, our time. And we basically went through where where Rob kind of explained this is the way he he kind of collates what is existing blog posts into digital medium suitable for putting in a book. And I learned a lot because there's a lot involved in actually getting that sort of content into book formats, electronic book formats. There were lots of good questions in there as well around things like, you know, a couple of people said, hey, were they really like an audio book version? And we chatted about that later on. Uh, and there's, I guess it's one of those things we'll have to see whether there's demand, but there'd actually be a lot of effort going from uh, written form to verbal form. 
Because imagine like people are sitting in the car and I'm trying to explain the construction of an API endpoint or something like that. And I think there are ways of doing it, but suddenly there's a huge amount of work that's not there at the moment in doing the electronic one. Uh, so look, if you want to have a look at that, go back through that video. We are trying to get as much feedback as we can about uh, about content to go in there. I, I was telling the story, and you have to watch the video for the whole thing, but telling the story about how I got myself into uh, what I think can only be referred to as shitloads of trouble <laughs> when I first started developing software um, in the mid to late 90s due to horse racing, probably scams running here on the Gold Coast, and, and me writing software and getting myself... Uh, in over my head because like 20 year old Troy didn't know what he was doing it was just 20 year old all of us really so anyway that's a, that sort of sets a little bit of scene so there's a little bit of a, an introduction there then we talk about how every one of these blog posts that we're putting in there has got something else behind them that wasn't in the original post there's some other backstory or impetus for it happening in the first place and then there are things that happened afterwards uh, and uh, to be honest I'm still finding the right tone for some of it, particularly the, the bits that are more personal, because this is uh, yeah, this is a post that covers a bunch of stuff that's data breach related, personal stuff related, and um, you know, I'm just still finding where I'm, <laughs> where my comfort level is with how much to share there. But we are going to be feeding out uh, betas of it before too long. We're also still working on things like everything from the title through to the cover of the book itself, and that might be a, two different things that we iterate on. And this is the idea of doing the beaters. I'm basically in, in Rob's hands with this. He knows what he's doing. I don't really have much of an idea. So, you know, I've just basically followed his lead. But um, I like what's what's coming together. And it's now just a matter of finding time to get the whole thing done. Because what keeps happening is I'll go, oh, I'll sit down today and I'll do two more blog posts. You know, I'll do like the intros and the epilogues and everything. And then something like this Facebook stuff happens which is a perfect segue to this Facebook stuff. So, let's talk about Facebook. <laughs> now, I did talk about Facebook last week, so I don't need to go into too much detail about what's actually happened other than a very, very brief recap, which is that the headlines about the 533 million phone numbers and all this sort of stuff, what we're really looking at here is data that was scraped from APIs that, that did precisely what they were intended to do but may not have been consistent with our expectations as users of Facebook. Namely, they allowed for the lookup of a phone number, which then came back and returned other information, such as a person's name, uh, the location that they're in, not their address, but it'd be like, you know, Gold Coast Australia kind of thing. And that was pretty much it. And then there was a really, really tiny fraction of those records, like a half of 1% I found that actually had, say, a phone number against them. Uh, and uh, sorry, let me rephrase that, a, 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 an email address against them, or in some cases, a date of birth against them. And what it all boiled down to is what information had people made publicly accessible on their profile and had they set themselves to be discoverable by a phone number? Now, there's sort of two parts are here, and this, this leads on to what I'm going to talk about with the class action stuff and all the other fallout. But the important thing here is that this this was a part of Facebook that behaved in the way they intended. Now, there's a whole other discussion here about should it have ever behaved in that way, and evidently they later decided that it shouldn't because they revoked the feature. But there was the intention to discover people by phone number. Now, putting aside the privacy implications and everything for a moment, I can see why, as a feature, a social media company would build that 
because a phone number is like a it's almost like a public key to people's lives right if you have a whole list of phone numbers and then you've got a whole bunch of people using a platform and they've put their phone numbers in this is a good way of joining them up and connecting the dots so i can see the business rationale for want for a better term there is then the question of had people intended their data to be publicly searchable in this fashion now, my data wasn't in there, and, and very coincidentally, I, I shared a screen cap of this on Twitter the other day, but I was, uh, I was on Facebook, like, just as all the news about this was blowing up, and Facebook's like, hey, would you like to add your phone number to your profile? Like, nope. <laughs> nope, nope, I would not like to do that. But there are definitely other platforms where I have put my phone number in, very often because that is their means of 2FA. We're going to send you an SMS with a code after you successfully enter your username and password. Charlotte was in there, her Norwegian dad was in there, and I was like, hey, do you remember doing this? She's like, honestly, like how much of us actually remember the places that we put our phone number, especially years ago, because this is what it's like online now. You know, there's just all these different places we have to leave personal data to do everything from create social connections through to literally just do your shopping or your banking or something like that. So... I suspect that in many cases, people added their information without realizing the ramifications of it. Now, this is where I think Facebook is going to have a bit of a defense here, which is like, look, we provided a feature. We added terms and conditions. You agreed to the terms and conditions because we all read those, don't we? Anyway, so that was the backstory. So what we ended up with is multiple different corpuses of data which had been collated by scraping information off these endpoints. Now, the fact that multiple different corpuses made it a little bit tricky because I would have people pop up and say, hey, I was in, I'm going to air quote this, the Facebook breach, and then I searched Have I Been Pwned, and it didn't come back. And so, well, you were in one set of data that was circulating, which had allegedly come from Facebook. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the same set of data that I had. So I pulled down two corpuses of data, one that was sent to me a couple of weeks before all this news broke, and another which was the data which was very broadly circulating on popular hacking forums and so on. And then I just combined them and loaded that. So it's, it's like a superset of the 533 million. But anyway, so people were a little bit confused about that. Uh, I got huge amounts of, of media interest. So I must have done, I don't know, 30 interviews or something like that with people just interested in in what had happened. And I, and I, f- I find it a little bit curious because at the end of the day, it's phone numbers and names next to each other, which is not exactly sensational. And I think what makes it really interesting is the fact that it is Facebook. It's the world's largest online platform. There's going on 3 million people using the platform. Uh, and less than 20% of those <laughs> ended up in this data set. So in, in some ways, it's like, all right, so less than 20% of the audience impacted with something which is largely public data anyway. And I'll come back to that. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Facebook. How does this make such headlines? Well, it's I think it makes headlines because it's Facebook. So anyway, that was that was what was actually in there. And there was huge interest from media, huge interest on have I been pwned once you could do the phone number search. So I had about 6 million people in one day. Didn't notice it, <laughs> which is great. Now, when I say I didn't notice it, nothing cloud-wise I noticed. There were no alerts about resource exhaustion or anything like that. There was no, there was no scaling on the app service, which is what runs the web front end. The, inevitably, the, the Azure serverless functions, which sit behind the searchers, got a hammering. 
but that was fine. They just scaled absolutely no problems as well. So I, I love the fact that when things get really big on Have I Been Pwned Now, I would say this would be the second largest incident I'd had, with the first one being the Collection 1 credential stuffing list in early 2019. So I didn't notice any of it, which is awesome. And the only way I knew about the numbers is I was just going in like reloading the Cloudflare dashboard every now and then, looking at the volume of requests, and I've got the little metric which shows me the number of Have I Been Pwned subscribers. Uh, sitting down there on my desk and at the moment it's at 3.74 million um, and I tweeted only the other day that it hit 3.6 so I've put on about 140,000 subscribers in I think pretty much the space of the, the last week week and a little bit so that's uh, that's a healthy result and it's, it's healthy look I mean this is all free of course people just sign up and leave their email address but it's healthy because now there's another 140,000 people we're in there when they're in the next data breach and they, they will be then they're going to get told about it as soon as I possibly can. All right, so the traffic and everything was was really big. Um, Facebook have sort of taken the approach that uh, this was... They're obviously downplaying it. And I, I want to qualify what I mean by that. They're saying that this is information that was scraped off uh, a feature which was discontinued, I think they said, in August 2019. It's not a data breach, and I do agree with their, their definition there. This is not this is not a, a security flaw in a feature. This is not data that was left in a laptop in a car and someone stole it. It's not a public backup that someone downloaded. It's none of those things. This is data that was used in a way that it wasn't intended to be used, um, and that does call it, a, call it scraping, which is the term they've used. I think that's probably a fair term. But I don't like the term data breach because we tend to apply it for every single case where data is accessed, even when the data is literally published (laughs) by either the platform or in this case, a combination of the platform and the users. Now, we saw the same thing just after that with LinkedIn. Allegedly, there's half a billion uh, profiles floating around there. And we saw the same thing with Clubhouse, uh, which is the I think it's the one where you can just like drop in and have random audio chats with strangers, which sounds like nothing could go wrong at all with that. Now, in, in both those cases, it's making news headlines around data breach. And I've actually felt sorry for Clubhouse because they're like, it's not a, like you, you, you're literally just going to our platform and downloading information which is intended to be public anyway. That said, I think there's a discussion here around what can these social media platforms do in order to, at the same time, provide the feature that they want to provide, the ability to find and connect to people, but simultaneously not allow it to be abused so that too many people can find other people to connect and talk to, if you know what I mean. So how do we get these two things to actually work in harmony? Because people are using these platforms because they want to connect to other people. I am not a fan of the delete Facebook movement. I like using Facebook. I have decided not to add my phone number. Uh, I like using it because that's where I get a lot of updates from my friends, particularly when I can't travel overseas and see a lot of them anymore. I like seeing what other people are doing in their lives. I like seeing uh, information shared by the, the businesses and the pages and things I follow. Like it adds value to my life. How do we keep doing that without jeopardizing privacy? Now, this sort of then brings us to the to the class action. And, and I only saw this this morning, so I'm sort of sharing thoughts as I go here, but this will tie beautifully into last week's blog post. So, someone pointed me to digitalrights.ie. And 
let's just start by defining who digitalrights.ie is. And I'm literally going to read off their material because, again, I'm learning as I go here. Digital Rights Island. DRI is working to protect the fundamental rights and privacy through action at national and European level and through public activism. Uh, I, I th- believe, as best I can tell, are they a non-profit? I don't know. What is... What is the... You think normally a non-profit tells you pretty quickly they're a non-profit. If I go to the Twitter profile page, uh, it's a civil liberties group working to defend your civil and human rights online. Let's just assume that they're not a commercial entity for a moment, uh, unless there's evidence to the contrary. So anyway, that's uh, that's their gig. Now, the page that's on pointing me to here is digitalrights.ie forward slash Facebook. And the title here is, We're Suing Facebook, Join Us. All right. Now, it then goes down and says, uh, was your, the byline here, was your data leaked in the Facebook data breach? And, and again, I just feel that data, why they capitalize D and B in data breach? That's quite odd. Is that now like a proper noun? <laughs> so, again, I don't think it was a data breach. I think that is the wrong term to use. Uh, it just feels like using the word data breach serves a purpose here, which is inconsistent with the reality. Um, now, I just had a little alert here. YouTube is not receiving enough video to maintain smooth streaming. As such, viewers will experience buffering. So apologies if you're experiencing buffering. Um, now, I've got a lot of people online here at the same time, but uh, hopefully it's not, it's not sort of messing anything up for anyone. All right, so let's move on. It says, Facebook is legally obligated to protect your data. Seems reasonable. They failed 533 million of us. In April 2021, a computer files computer files containing personal computer files. Who says computer files? Computer files containing personal details of 533 million Facebook users were released on the internet. The files included information of Facebook IDs, location, mobile phone numbers, email addresses, relationship status, and employer. And this is where I start to have a little bit of an issue because it's. <laughs> It's like it's a partial correct. It's a partial correct because only about half a percent of the records actually had an email address, a relationship status, or any of these other things. I mean, the the value proposition here, and the the bit that they've forgotten actually here is the names. So the the main thing here, and this is this is like ninety nine percent of the problem was the mapping of names to phone numbers. Now, location was in there as well, but say in Charlotte's case, it was like the town that you grew up in. It's, it's not like a physical address or a geolocation or something. So it does feel a little bit intentionally glorified. Now, under that, they recommend using this site, haveibeenbone.com, to search if your phone number was impacted. And uh, it, it's not that I'm not okay with this because this is what I want Have I Been Pwned to be used for, but I'm just not supportive of... of this class action situation for reasons that I will delve into in a moment. So anyway, they go on here. Uh, you can go to have I been. You can go to https colon com. You really need the scheme in there. It does feel like a bit of overkill. And use your phone number. There's a bit of guidance here on click here for an example of using international phone numbers. Now, actually, this was one piece of feedback that was very fair from the blog post where people said, I don't know what an international phone number is because I actually changed like the little mask on the field to say email address or international phone number. And I guess it's one of those things where for for many of us, it's just like, well, of course I know what an international phone number is. That's what you dial every time you want to, you know, get in touch with someone. But there are a lot of other people who maybe never have to make international calls and they didn't understand that format. 
Um, it, it is just a Google search away to figure it out, but I do appreciate the UX could be better. Trick for me is there are over 11 billion records and have been pwned. Only about 500 million of them are phone numbers. So how do I make sure that for the 5% of use cases where someone's looking, assuming the use case of phone number to email address is pretty much pro rata with the volume of data, how do I ensure that the 5% of use cases don't degradate the experience for the 95% of use cases? Because someone said, for example, oh, you should have a drop-down list before the field so you can choose your country code. I'm not sure that really works. Anyway, different story. I'll come back to that, uh, and I will, I will make improvements there later on. You can sue Facebook for monetary damages. If you live in the European Union or European Economic Area, you can seek monetary damages from Facebook. The GDPR gives you the right to monetary compensation where your data protection rights have been breached. Now, here's where I start to have the issue. And I'm going to sort of combine this with the discussion about the ambulance chasing class action blog post I wrote. The issue I have with this is that if we think about what's been leaked, names next to phone numbers and damages, and we say, okay, what are the damages that can occur when a name and a phone number are next to each other and are breached? Expose. I don't want to use the breach word. Exposed. Uh, you might get more spam. You might get more phishing. It doesn't really help someone circumvent your 2FA. I heard people say, oh, there's bad news for people that are using mobile phone number for uh, or SMS for 2FA. Well, it's, it's, it's not really, and there's a very simple reason for that. Just knowing someone's phone number doesn't get you access to their phone number. There are things that you need to do after that. And we have seen many interesting stories about this. Joseph Cox had a really good story the other day. I think it was 16 US dollars he paid someone to get access to his phone number. And uh, in cases like that, that is a serious incident. That is someone deliberately targeting Joe. Now, if you want to deliberately target Joe, there are many ways of discovering Joe's phone number. One of those ways is to use a phone book. <laughs> and <coughs> excuse me, in, in the tweet thread that I put out, <clears throat> oh, probably about an hour ago before I um, before I sat, well, before I went and got my coffee and then did this video, I sort of embedded a tweet there where I'd, I'd previously joked that when I had a phone book land on my doorstep over here. In fact, let's look at what was in that in that data breach. When I had that phone uh, phone book land on my doorstep, what was actually in there? Johnson, GP, 97 Tradewinds Avenue, Paradise Point. Uh, their phone number is 55015052. And, and, and the funny thing is, like I was looking at this tweet again whilst I was waiting to get my coffee this morning and, and I thought, should I redact this? Should I have redacted it? When I tweeted this a year ago, like, should I have redacted this? It's like, no, it was like literally dumped on my doorstep. It was dumped on hundreds of thousands of doorsteps around the Gold Coast because this is by design how phone book works. So for the most part, we're talking about data which actually has less fidelity than a phone book. A phone book actually has a full physical address in it. Now, granted, it has a last name and a first initial, so there could be some interpretation there. There are a lot of Johnson J's in here, but let's face it, Johnson J's probably going to be the most common thing there. Um, I can't remember whether my details are in there or not. I can't remember whether I opted out of the phone book. Because remember, a phone book, certainly here in Australia, is an opt-out 
thing. You have to consciously say, I do not want to be part of it. Anyway, point here is that just knowing someone's name and phone number is not sufficient for SIM hijacking. You will then need to go and do other specific things. And the point I'm trying to make is that 533 million records next to each other, look, it's going to make it easier to do mass reconciliation of phone numbers to identities. It's not really going to make it any easier to go and hijack someone's SIM. So when we talk about damages, the whole idea is someone will now be will now have their accounts hijacked because two FA is circumvented. It's absolute rubbish. Not only does it really not make it any easier just by knowing the phone number and the name because you can find it out from so many different places. But the whole point of 2FA is it is the second factor. You still need to get the email address and the password in order to get to that point. And then people say, yeah, but what about the cases where it's just SMS alone, which is used for account recovery? Well, that's not 2FA. <laughs> like that's 1FA and it's using the weaker factor as the single point of recovery. Hmm. So I don't agree on the damages front that account takeover is going to be a problem. Now, will you get more spam and more phishing attempts? Almost certainly. I'm, I'm very convinced that we will see more of that as a result of the Facebook incident because it is such a nicely curated list. What are the damages? And this is what I keep coming back to. It's like, okay, let's say Charlotte to her Norwegian number starts getting more phishing attempts and more spam. What is the impact on her? Well, she already gets a shitload of it anyway because she's on the internet. <laughs> you know, like she gets it to her email and of course she gets it to her phone because we get a lot of that these days. Well before the Facebook incident, the amount of like ATO scam we're getting, the Australian tax office, where it's one of those recorded messages, your tax, and it's, it's a really weird kind of voice, um, you know, your, your, your tax file number has been suspended. You know, please press one now to speak to a recovery officer before you go to jail, uh, that sort of thing. That happens a lot. And, and now... If she gets that again, is it because of Facebook or is it because her number is already out there and other people are already abusing it? And, and this is part of the challenge about the proving of the damages bit. How do you prove in the wake of, let's call, let's call it a data leak, in the wake of a data leak that you're getting spam because of this incident and not because of that incident or not because someone just looked up your name in the phone book? And the, and the, the simple answer is, is that it's almost impossible to prove it Outside of cases where people are doing things, like let's say for email, they're doing plus aliasing and they're putting in, uh, you know, like Troy Hunt plus Facebook at gmail.com or whatever your address is. And then you start getting spammed to that. And it's like, okay, well, this is rather coincidental, isn't it? It's very hard to prove these damages. And this is what I have a lot of trouble with, where whether it's the digital rights in Ireland folks or whether... In the case of the blog post I wrote, it's this lockbox situation. So for folks that haven't heard this story yet, I had someone email me, and I'd wanted to write this for a long time, actually. I had someone email me a couple of weeks ago, and they said, I'm currently in the process of claiming compensation for a severe data breach, which occurred on the 20th of February, 2020. And I'd forgotten all about lockbox because it was not a major incident. Uh, it's data that didn't appear circulating anywhere that I could put into Have I Been Pwned. But basically, I go through in this blog post and go, all right, well, I was like, all right, I'm going to humor this guy. So I went back and said, um, what has the impact been on you that's resulted in the compensation claim? So, you know, you're going to sue Lockbox. You know, what has happened to you to cause you to seek compensation? And he said, here in the UK, we're covered by data protection laws, and this includes non-financial distress. 
I'll repeat that because it's a key word, key term. Non-financial distress, knowing that our data is now in the hands of criminals and being sold, misused. So, you didn't know that already? Come on, mate. Like, honestly, you're on the internet. Your data is being abused. Like, one way or the other. And I'm not trying to justify Lockbox having a data breach here. The point I'm trying to make, and this also goes back to the whole impact of the Facebook thing, is that you always have to assume that your data is in a data breach because it almost certainly has been. Not just of the ones that you know about, but all the ones you don't know about. How many of them are there? It's like, well, I don't know. I just know it's a lot. So anyway... He's a bit sad about this. Uh, he says, I have received an increase in spam and an increase in unsolicited phone calls, phone calls to my number. I have to be aware that phishing scams may be used against me. It doesn't take a data breach for this to happen. And this is, again, what kind of does my head in. It's like, why do you think this is a new thing that suddenly you have phishing scams against you as a result of this, but you didn't have them before, and now suddenly you need to be aware, but before this you didn't need to be aware. Like, this is just ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. So, that was my response to the guy. And in fact, I, <coughs> I went back to him and I said, how have you attributed spam and phishing emails back to your lockbox breach as opposed to another breach or obtaining your personal info from another source? And he said there would be no way to attribute the spam and phishing emails back to Lockbox solely. The claim is based on the distress caused by the loss of data, which in provided for, that's his typo, not mine, I copied pasted, which let's say is provided uh, for in law as a non-material damage. But again, we're back to just being sad about it. So I tried to, um, I was explaining to this to, to Ari this morning, and uh, we're talking about, because I had to explain all these terms. In fact, Charlotte and I and I were sitting there earlier this morning and we we're talking about this instant because I was reading through the Facebook class action thing as he came downstairs. Uh, and I had to explain a bunch of things because he's 11 and Charlotte's English second language. So some things like ambulance chaser uh, are unfamiliar terms. And I remembered the, uh, the McDonald's hot coffee situation. And now I'm going to read this out because this is a really good example of this. Uh, let's say lady burned by McDonald's coffee. So for those of you not familiar with this story, this is in Wikipedia under Liebeck versus McDonald's restaurant. And this story goes back to 1992. And just to sort of cut to the, the, the crux of it, lady gets a coffee from McDonald's uh, and apparently her grandson's driving the car and she has the coffee between her legs. There's an elderly lady. She's 72-something. He stopped the car. She's gone to take the lid off so she can put some sugar and some milk or something in her coffee. And as she's pulled the lid off, the coffee has spilt all over her lap. Uh, and she got some burns from it, which sounded very unpleasant, in fairness. And she ends up suing McDonald's successfully because the coffee was too hot and she didn't have some sort of a warning. And it's just... It kind of feels like this. It's like, yeah, you gave your data to a company. You said, make it public, make it searchable. They do that. Someone else gets it, sends them possibly some spam. And it's like, you want to go, oh, McDonald's coffee spilled in your lap. Honestly, that's what it feels like. Anyway, let me go on. Uh, it then asked uh, you to join the Facebook case. And part of the problem here is that 
and this is sort of the point I made in the blog post, which, which of course was before I knew about this Facebook class action. Part of the problem here is that the effort for individuals to join a class action is extremely low. The barrier to entry is extremely low. And in the lockbox case, I actually went through and did some Googling and found lots of different legal firms advertising lockbox data breach compensation. So there's literally ads out there saying, hey, come and join the class action lawsuit. Very, very low barrier to entry. Now, part of this low barrier to entry is no win, no fee. So you think about the situation here, whether it was people who were in the lockbox data breach or now people, and that was a proper data breach, by the way, or people that were in the data scraped from Facebook. And it's like, leave your details here. There's a very low barrier to entry. You may get some money if this is successful. If it's not successful, nothing bad happens. Like, why wouldn't you have a go? I was saying to Charlotte, have a go. Like, you're European. <laughs> Put your data in. Like, let's just see how weird this shit gets. And in fact, I'm tempted to do that and maybe just track that process. But the problem is, is that because it's such a low barrier to entry and because there's no downside for people, I would argue, I don't think people really think through what this actually means. Do they really think through and go, well, have I actually suffered any damages? Has anything bad happened to me? Or, as Ari said to me this morning, he's like, well, if it's free money, why wouldn't you just do it? And it's like, well, yeah, this is the problem, mate. It's like people would just do it and the consequences be damned. And the consequences that worry me is it starts to put a lot of a lot of control back into private enterprise as to how organizations respond to data breaches. And this is really the job of the regulator. Now, someone here, I've embedded a few tweets. The last tweet I embedded is from a guy called Jade Bucknan. Uh, and I'm just going to sort of read this thread out because I thought he, he kind of really nailed this here. So Jade... Um, Jade says, privacy lawyer here. Litigation is an inefficient means to protect the public and promote good cybersecurity. A regulator with expertise and a sense of duty is probably the best option. I'll list a few reasons why. So, first reason here is specialization. <coughs> Regulators have teams of cybersecurity experts, experts rather, uh, the courts don't specialize and need to rely on paid expert witnesses. A problem with many current regulators is a lack of expertise, but it's securable with restructuring the legal system. Myopia class actions go after big headline grabbing breaches like Facebook. And remember, he wrote all this before the Facebook one too. These often don't involve harm to individuals like ID theft. Courts don't pick the targets. Class action plaintiff lawyers do. Regulators can focus their efforts on breaches that demand it. Fairness, a fine, can be enough to incentivize better cybersecurity without destroying the business. In a class action, the focus is damages, not correcting behavior. And I think this really nails the heart of why I feel really uncomfortable with class actions as opposed to regulatory action. Everyone in the Facebook breach wants as much money out of Facebook as they can get. Now, regulators in Ireland have apparently started investigating the Facebook situation. In fact, if I quote directly from the tweet I just sent, because I put it in the, the thread earlier on. Uh, where was this? It's in my profile. And the tweet's in here. Uh, okay, so the TechCrunch story here is Ireland opens GDPR investigation into Facebook leak. Oh, better use of the word there, leak. So there are regulators looking into this. And we want regulators to hold organizations like Facebook to account 
if that is required in these circumstances. It's not entirely clear whether that's the case or not. Uh, but they're going to be looking at, and Facebook in, in a way is not a good example because it's massive. But let's say Lockbox. In a case like Lockbox, we we surely as a society don't want the company destroyed because they provide a valid business as far as I know. We want them penalized and we want de-incentivized. We don't want them to have more breaches. Right? Like We wanted to make sure that they are conscious that there are penalties involved in a data breach and that others can see there are penalties involved in a data breach, but no one benefits from destroying the business. Class action lawyers are after as much money, as much damages, as Jade said, as they can possibly get. And that's where things are fundamentally different. He goes on, further on, regulators can assess if something was an understandable mistake and not issue a fine or if something was an egregious error that merits a fine. Damages in a class action should be tied to actual damages to plaintiffs, which may not correspond to the misconduct. Now, this is a really, really important point. Every data breach, and again, it's not the right term for Facebook, let's say lockbox or Dropbox, <laughs> it was the same thing. They had a data breach. Every data breach occurs due to human error. And it's funny, someone recently said to me on Twitter, they're like, you know, oh, look, most data breaches happen due to human error. And I'm like, name me one single data breach that ever happened that wasn't due to someone cocking something up somewhere. Every data breach happens because of a mistake somewhere. Now, the question is, is that was that mistake reasonable, understandable, even acceptable under the circumstances? Or was there, I think Jade used the term here, uh, any sort of misconduct? So was there an egregious series of errors? Let's say it was the Equifax situation. You know, Equifax had a situation where not only did they not patch environments, but they had uh, inexperienced people responsible for patching the environments. And then after the breach happened, they mishandled it terribly. They communicated badly. They tried to throw the poor patching guy under the bus. A lot of misconduct there. And then you take other incidents. What's a good incident? The Australian Red Cross Blood Service, uh, where they had a vendor of theirs leave a database backup publicly facing. And then once it was discovered, it was patched. Patched. <laughs> the data was just removed immediately. And the organization communicated very transparently, very rapidly, uh, in an absolutely exemplary fashion. You can sort of see that the two differences here between the two extremes of the things that had to go wrong and then the way it was handled and the point jade's making here is a regulator can assess that much more fairly in terms of what penalty should be leveled at the organization as opposed to a class action lawyer who's really just looking to make as much money as possible he also says fines can also be issued for instance where there is no economic loss courts can award damages for things like emotional distress but it's mushy and disciplined disciplined yeah okay I don't quite understand the use of that word there. Anyway, fines should relate to misconduct, not the consequences to the data subject. Interesting. So when we, uh, when we put this back in context with the Facebook situation, I think that this is a case where Facebook made too much information available, almost certainly with the consent of people, who probably didn't read the terms and conditions or understand the consequences because it is such a complex social media platform now. I think that this should be investigated. Facebook obviously felt that they made too much information available because they did close that particular feature of the application. And there needs to be some transparency around what actually went on, 
what was the actual impact on individuals. And then if we got to the point, let's say hypothetically, we got to the point where we're like, yeah, a whole bunch of people actually really suffered some losses from this. Well, then I see a place for something like a class action. But I really, this just, it just reeks of everything that I was concerned about when I wrote that blog post the other day. Now, also part of the reason I wanted to write this is I have had many, many occasions over the years where I have been contacted by class action lawyers wanting more information about data breaches in order to make their case against the organization. And time and time again, I've gone back and I said, look, I'm, I'm trying to understand before I support you and what you want to do, what is the impact on individuals? And it always comes back to people being sad. Almost always. It's, it'll either come back to people being sad or this could be used for identity theft, but we can never prove it. And again, this is where I think that regulator's got to step in and, and whack penalties as appropriate, but I just do not feel comfortable at all with, uh, with class actions of this nature. All right, I have gone on <laughs> quite a bit here, and I just look at some of the comments here. Uh, Marcus says, just because we don't know doesn't mean we shouldn't be paranoid. Um, uh, just because you're paranoid also doesn't mean you're wrong as well. Thorsten, everyone in Ireland knows that the regulator here has no teeth, mainly because Facebook is a huge employer here and nobody wants to upset Facebook. So I guess the thing is, is that particularly when we look at, at GDPR, and I always feel a little bit uncomfortable at this, mostly because I don't get the protections that, in this case, my fiancé gets. It's like, why, why do a bunch of you listen to this, get all these protections, and I get nothing because I'm Australian? So it always feels a little bit odd, but this is also the way the world works. I mean, it just gets divided down into these these sort of logical geographic boundaries and different people get different rights in different parts. But be that as it may, GDPR does cover a very, very substantial number of people, and most of them are outside Ireland as well. So is there action being taken by regulators in other parts of the EU? Um, is it even possible to do this on an EU-wide basis? I don't know. But uh, I appreciate the island situation. Obviously, Ireland is a very tax-friendly location. Many organisations do end up incorporating an island for uh, favourable treatment, <laughs> shall we say. So even if it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get traction there, one would imagine that, let's say the French, the you know, French are really pissed off at Facebook. You know, could the French regulator start to go down this same path? And if they don't, what does that tell you about how severe the incident actually was? So we will see. Okay, folks, look, I think that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining. This has been a lot of, a lot of lawyer stuff. Um, I hope that we do get a little bit more clarity into all this in, in the near future. But I would imagine particularly, can you imagine how hard it would be to bring a, like a lawsuit against Facebook? They must have an absolute army of, of lawyers. So it might be quite some time before we actually find out anything uh, more about the outcome of that. And I'll, uh, I'll talk about that when we do. So thank you very much for watching this uh, Saturday morning My Time version uh, on the Friday coming. I'm going to do this in the morning My Time because I have some, some visitors coming later in the afternoon that I want to spend time drinking beer with. So till Friday morning. Cheers, folks. <laughs>